listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. Whoa. Whoa. Serious. Now we're really recording it. (laughs) In stereo, we're available. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, This is Katie Van Horn. And this is Jackie Clayton. And And this is... (laughs) (laughs) The Inclusive AF Podcast. I should have had you go. I stumbled on it. Yeah. We are here this morning. It's a chilly morning in Arizona. Um, I don't know about Waco, but it's freezing here. Come Um, on. And no, it's the weather. It's 49 degrees this morning when I woke up. Uh uh. That's Mm. freezing in Arizona. Poor, poor animals in my house are like, uh, Mama, we're going to go back to bed and snuggle up. You do what you need to do. so uh we are very excited today uh we have a a friend here with us uh to share some great information and uh you know have a good conversation uh so sabina mahmoud is here with us and we are very happy to have her sabina do you want to introduce yourself share a little bit about who you are yes absolutely and thank you i'm happy to be here um it's 44 degrees where i'm sitting in new york so it's equally cold Um, I did just move my car off the meter before this, so I'm defrosting slightly. But um, like you said, my name is Sabina Mahmood. I sit as the U.S. pay equity leader for a company called GapSquare, which focuses on pay equity solutions for the workplace. So understanding truly what are the key contributing factors to pay disparities within an organization and how you can work to overcome them. Um, A little bit, I'm sure we'll get into what that actually means, but a little bit about myself. So I um, joined GapSquare this year, specializing in pay equity and working with organizations to really draw the connection between pay inequity and wider workplace inequities, to think about the ripple effect that pay really has on the rest of the organization. Before that, I'm a data nerd, right? So I actually, my background is a bit more focused in sustainability. Um, and social data reporting in the ESG landscape. So I've previously led a product called the Bloomberg Gender Equality Index, which focused on supporting companies and identifying opportunities for development across five themes within with respect to gender equity, and then in turn scoring and considering them for index inclusion, right? In turn building that business case for equality. Um, so th- this evolves, right? Pay equity leader is a title that, what does that even mean? And I <laughs> changed my description almost daily, um, but you know, it's it's been a really interesting jump into the compensation space more specifically. So, you know, the last year spent alongside my team here has really been eye-opening um, and exciting, right, an exciting new challenge. Wait, so there's me. pay disparities? I'm <laughs> just Would kidding. you believe it? Would you believe it? <laughs> um, yeah. you. I'm, Honest truth is we've gotten that reaction, right? <laughs> Clients will say, yeah, we've gotten coming and, and looking at the product and saying, well, we don't have an equal pay problem. And it's like, okay, well, interesting. Then why are we talking? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I'm so glad. I just smile knowing that there's some, at least I know there's someone in the world somewhere, New York in particular, that is working on this problem. It is so huge and pervasive and i think we've gotten to a point where we just can't turn a blind eye anymore you know like i i would love to know like where is there anything shocking as you got into this work i'm always asking was there anything surprising that even while you knew that they were um, pay disparities but things that you weren't expecting in some of the research that you've done 
Um, it's a great question, and you're exactly right. No, I'm, I'm glad to be working on this, and I will say, I'll be honest with you. When I was working in the capacity of, of the Gender Equality Index, there was a subsection that focused specifically on pay. Pay data is the least publicly disclosed data globally. So even if we consider the UK where there's reporting mandates around the gender reporting pay gap and increasing transparency laws in the states, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, every, there is such a veil behind, right? Everyone's acting behind a curtain. And I think one that's eye-opening is really everybody's on the same page. You know, however progressive you are, consider you consider yourself to be, um, there's always work to be done, right? So we can't remain complacent in that. But I will say, when I sat in the data perspective and worked with companies, I just, you know, asking for a global data set, I just couldn't understand. I was like, why, why, this is to help you, right? Like, what, what would make this, what what can we do to our scoring mechanism or what can we do to kind of the metrics that we're assessing to encourage you to report because we can't even draw analysis if the data doesn't exist right if we don't understand where we're starting um and at the time you know companies would say well you know it's because it's a global aggregate or it's because you know we're not going to normalize our executive employees sitting in canada with our production line in bangladesh and all of these i mean viable reasons but in my mind seemed like excuses. Um, but what I will say is in the past few months, really getting under the hood of pay and equity specifically and understanding the nuances within HR and compensation specifically, I get it, <laughs> right? I get, I get the complexities and I'll admit that I was the first one to come in historically and say, well, just report it and we'll start from there. Now I understand that, I mean, it's a tremendously complex um, topic, but not it shouldn't be so complex that we just don't address it right so i think that's really my role is how can we just lift the veil and first identify that everybody's relatively on level playing fields here and that you know we have work to be done i think sure. that's one of the things that that comes up so much and you know obviously it, i'm on the other side of it being in hr and it is that like scariness of how transparent should we be and if you're sharing this data externally to you know a vendor or to whomever there is that fear of like what's going to happen because if there are discrepancies which there always are if there are issues if there are you know equity pieces that just aren't right in your organization then there is that fear of what you know is the workforce going to quit are they you know and also then like how do we solve it because a lot of times it's not a couple dollars it's a chunk of change that you need as we've seen with certain companies that have tried to remedy some of these things so it is always very interesting um you know kind of what approach to take uh from you know from the practitioner end um exactly. of how we address it and i mean i think that's evolved even in itself right when we think about this idea that employees are leaving what do we do i mean historically you could turn a blind eye but what we've seen over the past few years is employees are leaving in mass exodus right so you really can't turn a blind eye and public reporting is is equally terrifying right when we work with clients we really we say we have reporting capabilities but then i add the caveat that doesn't mean i'm pushing you to publicly report because i don't want to we don't want to kind of scare anyone away in that capacity but being able to report in the way that you can communicate this internally is is equally important if not more important truthfully in, in understanding where you are and how you can progress I, I think there's so much, like when we, um, so I work at Textio and I lead talent acquisition. And since we hired in nine states, um, 
when we decided to publish them publicly, I was like, oh, like it wasn't a choice. I wasn't going to have a choice. We we already worked in Colorado. So whatever. And then we got a call from the Wall Street Journal and I was like, oh, shit, like. I'm just doing my job, like, I don't understand why this is new. Like you couldn't find anybody else. We only have 122 employees. This shouldn't be like earth shattering. Um, And then it really took like four, maybe four or five days where I was like, oh, like we had to deal with the real issues. And I was like, this is why people don't publish. And this is why it was so important for us to publish. They were like the same things where we had to do full sweeps. Um, But we're still seeing how like people are unclear sometimes on why is this salary with this title and what, and we realize that it's, there's just so much mismanagement salary alone. It's like people exactly. just make stuff up. Exactly. Right. You're exactly right. I think that's the genesis of all of this. And I think what we see now, I mean, Colorado is a great example. And I think the evolution of pay transparency in Colorado has improved. California, we see, we'll see a rollout in January and New York City, just November 1st of this month. There is, I want to draw a difference between pay transparency and kind of the, the using that as a method to really identify where you are, right? Pay transparency is really a jumping off point that will expose a lot of pay inequity issues, right? So we can kind of interchange the two, but what we can say is this is pay transparency is a tremendous turning point, right? And I think actually what it will do for organizations is probably more difficult, introduce more challenges in the way that you said before it's helpful. Um, But the fact of the matter is one, it leads to a certain level of accountability that employees and stakeholders all around just are expecting and demanding right now. but when it comes to pay equity and the key drivers of pay differences, it's interesting. So in the in our analysis, what we focus on is not only protected characteristics, right? So we work with the organization to understand where are they in this process, right? Are you just looking at gender? Are you looking at race and ethnicity? Any combination of the two or at all, right? So when you the way you said about salary, people just decide a number. We also will take into consideration performance indicators, location, tenure, all of these pay adjustments right? And I'm air quoting adjustments because people will, especially in the U.S. market, I think there's a tendency to try to explain away pay gaps. Um, But those are, these historically have been decided by a human, right? So some organizations, of course, have performance matrix and all of these, uh, you know, processes that have been evolved. But we're looking for that too. We're looking for an unfair distribution based on salary, location, tenure, performance, education, it's interesting because in a demo environment with our product team, our US specific team brought up the idea of introducing on our, our demo screen. Well, why isn't education listed as a contributor? And someone on the UK team has said, well, surely that's not a contributor. Right? Surely we didn't we don't even have to showcase that. And it's it just really goes to show that these there are so many nuances. Um, you know, and that's the value of the technology is allows us to identify those. But then, I mean, we, I could speak for hours, but also if we're perpetuating bias and artificial intelligence and things like that. So it's, it's not a one-stop shop type of conversation. No, I, and I'm glad, I'm glad that you said that the difference between like pay transparency is, it's almost like you've been sitting in the dark and, you know, it's like when, you know, we were young at the nightclub and then it's like, ooh, it's the last song and the light comes on, you're like, 
this place is gross. gross. Like you had <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Wait, is that what you look like? Visceral right? reaction to right. that. Right, you're like, oh, <laughs> oh. Um, and I think a lot of organizations are like that. Like they've been sitting in the dark the whole time and didn't know that it was just, you know, so many of this was going on. And even the employee, I think to be honest, my, my first, my gut reaction to pay transparency laws this is better for the employee. Like I think about any time I sought out a new role, I never knew what to ask for. Like, mm -hmm. Even having a starting point, um, it's bringing a level of empowerment to employees, right? And then there's negotiation training tools and mechanisms that you can go through, but it, it's gonna also force a lot of training and kind of learning and unlearning bias in our own organizations, right? Difficult conversations around compensation are have, happening at every level of the firm. It's no longer in this black box of HR or compensation at the most executive levels. Um, so organizations need to be prepared to train in the right way. I think that, you know, you're, I, I think when we talk about pay negotiation, a lot of times we're thinking about the candidate, but I think it's also the recruiting team because, you know, and I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, this happened a few years ago where I had a uh, recruiting leader and he came to me like three times as I was hiring for an HR business partner. She keeps negotiating. She keeps asking for more. She keeps, and I was like, okay, you know, that's good. Like that's what she should be doing. And I, and then it like dawned on me and I asked him, would you be asking, or would you be this like frustrated if this was a man negotiating with you? Because I know you actually like to negotiate. This yeah. is like one of the things that he loved doing. And, and he kind of like sat back in his chair, like, oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> and then he, you know, kind of completely changed his like, it's mindset. True. yeah, I'm like, and it's not intentional, right? It's we're kind no, of trained that's and that's where the unlearning comes in, right? We're trained to accept a certain standard or accept a certain trait. And it's just not the case. And I think, I think I meant to this, Katie, we've had some conversations before. I think I even said in my last role, when I was applying for a new job, the three people I called, I called two male mentors. I, Actually, the first person I called was my dad, right? And then I called male mentors, and then I started to think, and then my brother-in-law, and I started to think, like, well, I didn't even call my sister. I called my brother-in-law, right? Why, why, what is, there's something about this here and kind of the level of confidence. It's just different across men and women, and I think there's a real opportunity here, um, you know, to to bring that to light. And it's also, I I don't know if I'm allowed to do this on this platform, but can I ask you a question back? Because I'm curious, right? When we think about recruiters, I know, especially with pay transparency, I mean, let's take new york for example i don't know if you've seen the past few weeks i mean employers have been publishing pay bounds mm -hmm. hundred thousand dollar ranges minimum right a, a, one single job can range from 110 to 220. well that's not really useful for anyone and i imagine a recruiter would want to offer the highest end they could to kind of close that deal or i'm curious from your perspective kind of what is the conversation between the recruiter right because we want to think about at the hiring level we as a company are thinking about, well, there's justifications, right? Every hire will impact your pay structure, right? So we want to be able to articulate that impact to recruiters, right? So through data visualization and kind of this domino effect conversation, you know, how do we get through or understand from a recruiting perspective, where, where do you make the offer in this range? I, I can answer. I, <clears throat> we, we do it at, at I don't even know if this is the right way. So I always say that every time I say, okay, this is what we do. I don't know if it's right. This is what we do. So 
There's no right answer in this. Phase. One thing that I thought was really great, like when understanding the bands was understanding that this was the lifetime of the role, which I appreciated because it meant you didn't have to all of a sudden be a good manager. We all know we've learned at this point, hopefully some people are still in the learning process that you can some people are happy in the role that they are and they they aren't good at leading people to get a additional salary. So it, it explains the salary for the band. And so we the midpoint is the target. And so we've explained to candidates, this is the target. We'll just let you know, this is the target. The high end is 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 really based on tenureship and your um, the the length of time that you've been in the role. It's not based necessarily on merit. And so we try to negotiate within the midpoint because this is the range for this job title. So the midpoint is the same salary of everyone that has that same title. Um, and we're also willing to walk away just because we're not, we don't want to have that. We let people know that this is because of pay equity, that that's where the salary lies. And so we'll walk away from candidates. The recruiter gets mad at me. The hiring manager gets mad at me. The company gets mad at me. But the alternative is unless you want to give everybody a $20,000 range, then we can give him a $20,000 range. Um, And then the other thing that we've noticed that is has to do with bias is people from underrepresented groups not pushing as hard, maybe making one negotiation. And it became a thing where we, especially like I'm a a black woman, like um, the head of TA, our head of people is a Hispanic woman. And one day she just came back as like, why do all the white men come and ask for more money always? And then another white man who's a hiring manager will fight for that same salary, but won't fight for the salary from people from underrepresented groups. And I was like, it's because the people from underrepresented groups historically aren't asking. And so we're just happy because it it matches the way that it's supposed to work, right? It's the the happy to be here mentality, right? Like I'm happy to be here. I'm grateful for this opportunity rather than a perspective. And I've had this conversation in the past with some leads and from a DNI perspective, rather than you should be happy I'm here. It's a privilege for me to for me to That's be right. here. Right. And That's I think right. and it goes both ways. You as an employee feeling empowered, but also as a manager, right? This mentality of again, oh well, they should be happy they're in this role, right? And we give them so much time off as opposed to, oh well, he's such a good dad. He needs extra time to go home and pick up his kids. Right. right? And I think Part of it is the type of company, like we're a software company, but we're mission driven company. And so it's one of those things where we want people to be excited about the mission and try to make sure that that's part of why you want to be here. So we keep it the same with that understanding in advance. Um, but we I have imagine that like, will have lasting benefits for you. Right? Well, I, well I'll see, right? But <laughs> I always like we have done a couple of um, for various departments where we had to like sweepingly look and we look at it every year um, to, to make adjustments to make those those adjustments. But it was also very important that we didn't base that on oh, this person works really hard or, you know, because we have different lives, different lifestyles, we're all remote, people have different capabilities. It's not fair to then praise someone who works 80 hours a week, making that the company culture. So we we, we pay a lot of attention. And again, that's why I'm like, this is exhausting. Like I recognize why, you know, it would have been easier to just not, but I also understand the importance of the equity. 
Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Well, and I think, Jackie, that you make a, such a good point that I think one of the things that companies are challenged with is, you know, we're we're looking at this pay equity and unfortunately there's this, you know, finite number of dollars that you have every year to spend. And so it is the person that's the noisiest, the squeakiest wheel that normally gets the attention. And unfortunately, that's just, you know, that just builds more issues kind of down the road. And so I think that's also like a, a point that folks need to be aware of is it's not a one and done. It's an ongoing conversation. And so, you know, you, like you said, looking at different departments, looking at different cuts of data, looking at different ways to think about why is this happening here or there or whatever, because I think that's a lot of times people will do this pay equity analysis and they're like, okay, we're good. Everything's fine. Moving right along. But then you scratch it a little bit further and you're like, oh no. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's and, you know, yeah. From a diversity standpoint, I, I bring that up a lot as well, where people will say, oh, we're 50% male, 50% female. And I'm like, no, we have to look, look at the salaries. Are we paying 50% male, 50% female? And if not, we need to balance that out um, and make sure that those things you know, that that's fair. But I, I do want to make sure that something that I didn't know when I was an individual contributor, and I remember when I figured this out, someone has decided on a number for these roles. So a lot of recruiters think that, oh, they're asking for this money. No, it's been budgeted that it would be no more than this salary. And so it's more than hiring managers are the ones that are usually shocked when we're like, we cannot pay this salary. Um, and that it is, a, there's a lot more hands than the head of payroll, the head of HR, that the recruiter, there's a lot of pieces to, to equity and a lot of players in order to get this right. I think budget is the most realistic approach to this all, right? The money just doesn't, you know, for lack of a better, better term, money just doesn't grow on trees, right? It's a fair limitation. And I think it's twofold. When you think about it within HR specifically, or, and, and I guess most closely in diversity, equity, inclusion, when we think about budget cuts, even aside from talent acquisition as a whole, right? These are, these are the two largest areas that are first to get the largest cuts, right? In terms of the time of, of what what we're experiencing right now, right? Um, in terms of recession, but or looming recession. I don't know if we're officially in a recession yet or getting there. We'll see. <laughs> but um, so you know, initially when I started in in this work, it was always about building the business case for equality, and I shouldn't have to do that, right? I shouldn't have to to do say more than why are you treating people unfairly? Let's fix this. Um, but the truth is when you think about ingraining this as a business strategy, budget appears, right? And maybe it's not the budget we need, but it is, if it's ingrained in a business strategy across all of your teams, not just isolated in HR and isolated in DE&I, if you have a team dedicated to DE&I, right? That money, once you have a business strategy, money kind of, yes and no, but money will, will come into play. But 
So I think it's important in accepting kind of understanding like, yes, there is parameters there. And I think a lot of the work that we're doing and focusing in terms of the data presentation of all this is being able to show the impact, show a recruiter an impact that, that offering this amount of money will have on this wider strategy. If we offer this, we have to give up that. Um, and kind of drawing the relationship to a larger equity initiative, right? When we think about layering and not only pay structure, but how does that influence representation? Right, you used the perfect example. You can, what, until you kind of divide, and I like the quartile example, sure, if we look at representation of men and women across quartiles, pay quartiles specifically, you'll see that distribution skewed. Um, an interesting data point that I've looked at in the past that I really like focuses not only, okay, let, talk to us about your quartile distribution, talk to about us about your percentage women in executive roles, and then talk to us about your percentage women in the top 10% compensated roles. And what you'll see is they might have a 50-50 split of, of C-suite executives, but they certainly do not have a 50-50 split or a fairness or cross pay when you think about that top 10 compensation band. So it's it's not, it's really, in the, it's really interesting to overlay some of these themes, right? Not to just look at one number. Well, we have 50-50 split, we're fine. You have to look at it as all interconnected. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I, I, I want to dig in a little bit on, you know, on the ESG piece, because I, I know that that was your baby at one time. And, you know, I think this is the piece that's also interesting, that it's no longer just a, hey, we want to know this data, but it's also, what are we doing with it? And how does that impact our reporting capabilities, all those things? Um, I'll be right back. No I'm like, go, um, go ahead and respond. I think, yes, no, ESG is definitely still, I like to think it's still my baby, but um, listen, ESG is getting a lot of slack right now because there's all of, you know, publications around, is it greenwashing? Is it pinkwashing? Is it whitewashing? How are companies holding, holding themselves accountable? How are we standardizing this? Those are all fair pushbacks to this, this ESG agenda. But I think it's the pushback that we need to move towards standardization and move towards, you know, a space where we're really making decisions around impacts. Um, with the ESG agenda specifically, I'm just trying to think of the best way to articulate it. With social data, when we think about ESG and public reporting, there is absolutely companies that are saying we have a pay gap. we have a pay gap of working to close it right when we think about a, an annual report a sustainability report diversity equity inclusion report all of these filings that are becoming ever present in the market um, very few are getting into the details of what that is or explaining how they've come to that calculation but what they are what i think is is what we need to talk about more is the connection between pay and these wider ESG goals that you've set, right? Maybe your only social metric that you're looking at is percent representation of women in your top roles, right? Executive leadership and more specifically, we can look at women of color, right? I'll just use gender as, as an example. But pay sits as an influencing factor of pipeline. Pipeline development is what's influencing your representation at the most senior level, right? So when we think about the relationship between all of these things, so that you are publicly reporting on. I have a goal to increase representation, diverse representation on my board. I have a goal to increase diverse representation in executive leadership. Well, you have to really 
go under the hood and understand what are the key drivers that are introducing these difficulties in place, right? When I love when people say, well, there are not just not enough women in tech, right? There are just not enough people in this role. And there's just not enough people there. But one, this is a result of issues of systemic inequity that we've kind of been facilitating through the course of time. And two, you know, that's not, a, that's not a fair excuse, right? You have to look at kind of where is talent coming from? How are you moving talent within your organization? Pay sets is a key driver of that. It is not the only thing, absolutely, but it is definitely a fundamental contributor to some of these ESG metrics that you are focusing on, right? So if we work with a company that's made a public commitment, my role is to think about how, how does pay influence that, right? How do we actually start to fundamentally identify the key drivers that will help you succeed there? I love that you said that because that's exactly what I was saying when I um, first came to Textio. They're based in Seattle and they were looking to increase, you know, um, amongst black and brown employees. And I, you know, snarkily said that's going to be impossible because Amazon, Microsoft, like all of these companies that are Seattle based, have all made an increase of a minimum of 30%. And there's literally five black people. So if you're going to do this and you're looking at the population from a demographic standpoint, you're going to have to expand where you operate because the percentage is so low, let alone we haven't pulled all of the people to see, oh, PS, like, are you a software engineer? <laughs> are you a linguistic person? Um, we asked the question, someone asked me internally, because I run TA and DEIB, and they said, well, what are we looking for? Are we looking for a percentage and are we basing that based on the population? And I was like, no, that's stupid. That's not why the population numbers were created. It was created in order for like voting and like different, you know, commitments from the cities to figure out how many water hoses we need in case there's a fire, not how many software engineers we have. And I said, I hope I don't get fired for this. I was like, I'm taking the Noah's Ark approach. <laughs> I was like, we want two of everyone, of all the people. We are working to see who's missing. I'm pretty sure Noah didn't say, well, there's more lions than crickets. So we're going to have eight lions, three crickets, and then we're done. And you also don't want to make the implication that at some point we will be finished because like you mentioned very early in this conversation it changes with every hire can exactly. change the complete it can take a company completely off its access you know access um and uh, it is disheartening that when you see layoffs like this that they lay off people in HR, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and recruiting, which really hold the core of that culture of being able to perpetuate through the, it's almost like an organization goes completely rogue at that point. You know, like who's they managing? Do. <laughs> they do, right? Like, I think people <laughs> underestimate, I mean, if you don't have, a, an, if you don't have employees, you don't have a company. It's as simple as that, right? And when you think about that's the most the single most important contributing factor to your success at the hands of three teams who you've just laid off, right? So right. I think that that's a, a true, it's mind blowing, right? But I think we could also go down the rabbit hole here and think about like the, this new world of opportunity when we think about skills-based roles, remote work, and kind of all of these doors that this opens when we think about, well, sure, this population and this one 
neighborhood in Seattle is serving this, I cannot compete with the likes of Amazon who is sponsoring all of their employees on A1 visas and paying them a significant amount of money and letting them work at 2 a.m. Doesn't work for everyone's business model, right? We right. talked about budgets already, right? How do you compete? But I think there is a tremendous opportunity. And again, this is like another hour's minimum worth conversation when we think about skills-based roles and this evolving conversation around skills development and, and remote work is just, it's proving that that's not the case, right? It's, it's not that this talent doesn't exist somewhere. It's that this talent hasn't been fostered or supported in the way that it needs, right? There's significant opportunity gaps across underrepresented groups um, at the forefront of the hiring process, right? So we can, it just goes back to, you know, you cannot look at all of these factors in isolation. They are so interconnected and need to be treated that way. So Sabina, share a little bit more about like what your company does when you come into an organization, how, where do you start? What do you work on with them? How do you help support the HR team, the finance team, the, you know, the leadership team? What do you all do? It's a great question. And I'm glad you asked because I probably would have gotten a lot of slack if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't bring up what my company does. But um, so GapSquare itself is a software. So software is a solution that fundamentally works with organizations to help, it utilizes machine learning and artificial intelligence to identify those key contributors to pay discrepancies in the organization. That's the core of what we do, right? The identity, identify piece. Why are pay gaps persisting? Where are they persisting? Or I should say, where are pay gaps persisting? So you can start to unpack the why. So we really work with organizations at any level or any stage in this, in this conversation. And first and foremost, we work with them to identify what are your goals, right? Is this a pay equity audit internal only? Is it sitting with exclusively in, in um, compensation or are you working with the diversity equity inclusion lead talk to us about some of those pressures that are coming in so we can help craft and customize the data reporting mechanism but at its core really the data that comes out is only as strong as the data that goes in so you'll get companies that are just starting this path of, of pay equity analysis you'll have others who've been doing this historically you know with with um, huge consultants once a year as a one and done exercise for a significant amount of money um, or you'll have firms that are like, listen, we barely have gender data. <laughs> where, where do we start? So first and foremost is working with the organization to understand the data that's in front of them and what are they hoping to achieve, right? What is, what is your outcome? So the identity piece will flag employees at risk for pay discrepancies and potential avenues for remediation. What we also focus on within that is data visualization, right? So how are you, how can we think about in the US specifically, I'll just, I'll call out US, and I think it actually is a global lens as well, but there are, pay equity in the US does not sit with a single, the mission of pay equity does not sit with a single stakeholder anymore, right? So you have HR and compensation that's tasked with solving for these, these themes, but diversity, equity, and inclusion, of course, is pushing for them. Your C-suite is coming out of every board meeting saying we have to do something about this. And let's be honest, right? When your CEO comes to you and says, fix this, well, they think it's easy to fix in the same way I started this conversation. And that's not the case. So we want to really simplify the reporting mechanisms without oversimplifying the analysis, right? How do I take this analysis and then help communicate it back out to the C-suite and our DEI team and tell this holistic story? So identify. Sustain is the next piece, right? How do we sustain this at every level of the of hiring? and thinking about how this how a single pay adjustment might affect our broader workforce and when we start to layer in representation goals 
pipeline development, things like that. What are the contributing factors? Um, and then the third pillar, of course, is the reporting, right? So if it's internal reporting or external reporting, supporting a, a customizable approach to, to those tools within the platform. That is the software, right? The software helps you identify and provides you with all of the data you could possibly need to make an informed decision, um, or I should say all of the analysis, right? Because the data lends itself, um, lend itself to what, what the company has on hand. Now, my role, right? So what do I, how do we actually support companies outside of this? They've identified a gap, now what? Well, it's really also about how do we break down silos within the organization, right? Data visualization can help that. When you think about the nature of this, I mentioned all the stakeholders, very few of them are like sitting around the table together and deciding on something that's gonna happen. They're deciding on their own, they're communicating to their teams on their own. How can we help bridge the gap? It's through these communication methods. Um, yeah. So it's it's really like I said it's a software, but we we work alongside Expert HR, which we were acquired a, a year ago, and Expert HR brings brings to life this incredible compliance and legal landscape right under the umbrella of LexisNexis, right? So really, there are legal drivers, there are talent drivers, but like I said, it's really fundamentally identifying at the face value what is what is influencing pay, so you can focus on what we do about it structurally. Right. And really, what are the key drivers? Maybe it isn't a protected characteristic. Maybe it's my pipeline development. Right. Maybe we're just hiring, hiring for the sake of hiring. Right. That's not that's obviously not what we're advocating for. So, um, yeah, it's an exciting tool. I think it's it's I'll pause because I can go, I can go on and on and think about, um, you know, data is not the only solution, but I feel very strongly that it is a critical piece of the puzzle. You know, I have to stop. I think we were listening. Yeah, we I'm like, we could listen for hours. Here, so we're Both good. of us are I like, so, I get so, ex I get carried away and I'm, you know, I drink a lot of caffeine. So I have to stop <laughs> myself <laughs> sometimes. Well, I, I, I want to call out one of the things that, that you're mentioning. And, and I think, you know, we talked about this briefly. It's the data in, you know, you need good data to start with. And, you know, I think that's definitely what some teams, some HR teams are struggling with is, do we even have the accurate data, you know, from like a, I'm just going to uh, out HR here a little bit, but we know that, you know, sometimes you are visually identifying folks for an EEO report versus yeah. actually knowing what their race and ethnicity is. You're, you know, assuming certain things based on a picture of someone um, because you have to report on it. And so, you know, then you're making a generalization or making an assumption that may or may not be accurate. So I think the data is such a, you know, it's the, you know, clean data in, clean data out or the reverse of that. Um, and I think that's one of the pieces that if, if folks are looking at where do they start, start with just making sure your data is clean. Yeah. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. 
And it's it's a two-way street, right? EEO is my sweet spot. I can complain about that for days, right? It's it's of value, absolutely data for the sake of data, but I identify as biracial, right? My dad is from Pakistan and my mom was is American, but her background German Swedish, right? So opposite ends of the spectrum. I think at face value, it's hard to tell what I am, right? So it's, like I'm a prime example of how visual identification can go wrong. What is interesting, kind of an output of a lot of these exercises that we go through with organizations when they identify, hey, we don't, we don't even have the right data in the first place. Well, there's two main reasons why a person would, or studies show, there are two reasons typically why people don't self-identify with the organization. One, fear of discrimination, which inherently we can understand. And two, even if I tell my company they're not going to do anything about it. Right? So why am I going to waste my time going into the system, filling all of this out, and nothing's going to change. It's not going to impact my day whatsoever. So it's a double-edged sword, right? If you have that mentality, you don't have the data. But what you can start to communicate internally is, listen, we are doing something about this, right? We want to identify, we want to make this a better place for you. We want to foster inclusion here. We're not just doing this as a check-the-box activity. So how can we communicate what we are doing in terms of pay equity analysis to encourage and kind of support greater self-identification campaigns? So it's a two, it's a two-way street, right? It's a chicken and an egg scenario, but yeah. No, and I think that's a, such a valid point. There has to be trust there of what are you going to use this data for? And I think that again is where, you know, some HR teams are are still trying to figure out that communication and how they actually talk to folks about it because yeah, it isn't just, hey, I want you to just share this info just because. It's I'm going to here are the objectives of why, here's what we're trying to do, here's what we're focused on. Because if you don't have that trust and you don't have that conversation um, and that communication, but it can just feel like, a, okay, they just want to know stuff about me that I don't really feel comfortable sharing. So, exactly. Or yeah. that I have to log into Workday and go through this and click on that and there's a timer. Right? Yes. Yeah. But who doesn't love Workday? I mean, yes. I, I'm not knocking Workday. Let me publicly on the record, not knock Workday. Right, right, right. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. It's, <laughs> Jackie will knock it for both of us. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think awesome. it's like, I, I think that was part of it. So we just published our 2022 DEIB report and it's been, the response has been really good, mostly internally of see, being able to see that what we've actually done and that we're, we're doing something. Um, and I hope, you know, like that by showing your work that it'll encourage people to know that we're actually looking at these things to try to make sure that our programming is, is correct. And I was shocked, like you were talking about EEO data. I think the one that gets me the most is like they ask, asking if people are Asian. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, so we had broken it down. It's like, there's different people don't, it's part of like not understanding privilege and not understanding various barriers and not understanding it's very different from someone from Sri Lanka, um, you know, versus someone who's from Japan or having different experiences and especially um, in the tech space, what it, it's offensive to me that people say, well, Asian people don't count as an underrepresented group. And then you can say, okay, well, how many people, you know, are of Vietnamese descent? Like, 
I mean, it is a, from a research and data perspective, it's a black hole because yes. it is, they're so, when we think about a global approach to equity in this capacity, it's, I mean, the UK is an example that has different classifications among Asian, right? And that's mm -hmm. moving in the right direction. But when we think about what standardized data, we started briefly to touch on kind of people poking holes in, in ESG and specifically the social agendas, it's difficult to standardize. And I don't think it's necessarily the right answer to yes. try and standardize race, right? We can't actually standardize. Right. You're removing identity from this. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's difficult in the data and research space because the EO data has tremendous, it has flaws, right? I will be the first to admit, but in the US, it is simply the only data that exists in some aggregate form That's to right. start somewhere. And there's no way to compile it with the UK and then you have an employee base in Germany where you cannot ask or report on any of these. Where it factors. doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Exactly. I think in France, they focus specifically on nationality, but if I'm getting this right, and I'd have to, you know, fact check me here, but it's something along the lines of a company cannot ask, but you can disclose. And it's like, what, where am I going to disclose this if someone hasn't asked me kind of thing? So there are so many nuances there, but I agree with you 100% is, when I when I check two or more races, I mean, what does that mean for anyone? What does that mean for anything, right? My answer is two or more races on every form. You know nothing about me now, <laughs> right? Like there is no, nothing telling about my culture or my identity or how, you know, what is the story behind the scenes there that will help you foster this workplace, right? So I think there is, and you'll get most forms that will say explain this and kind of build that out. But at its core, two or more races and not telling you anything. Dividing Hispanic and non-Hispanic first before going into race is not really helpful either, right? Because we know as the world is increasingly becoming more beige, like myself, right? So when we think about this, it's it's no longer, I'd arguably it was never acceptable to focus on visualization. But now I think because there is this level of visibility and transparency around data reporting, researchers, data scientists, data minds alike are starting you know, equity analysts, equity advocates alike are starting to question this in, in a meaningful way. I wish I had the answer. <laughs> it's really, it's really hard work. Actually, this came up this morning on a report. It was like, well, can't we just combine them? And it's like, no, you can't just combine them. <laughs> right? There's but, no but it looks better. It looks better on the report if I combine them all. Otherwise, yeah. it looks like I don't have anyone from Latin America or from Eastern Asia or Pacific Islanders or whatever. So... And I think, I think Katie, we might have yeah. used this example when you say you have a 30% board. Well, you have one board member who is a woman who is a lesbian who identifies as having a disability. It's like, that's not, what is that doing? Yay! Right? I mean, yeah. That's a public report that you have a 30% diverse board. Right. We it's, had to explain last week, we have mostly women on our exec team. And someone goes, oh, it's like a Mecca. I was like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Like, oh, that's not good. I was like... No, <laughs> actually, that's not fair. What? Yeah. And, and I think it's because I, I finally I realized this last week and I'm going to start yelling this from the tops again, just like when we talk about those numbers were not created for HR and, you know, looking at talent acquisition folks, the numbers that we have with the demographics of a, of a community. Um, just as much, it's like when you're looking at the other things that we are using that we do have, but it was not created for that. And the rules that people understand for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging that have been passed down like telephone were not created 
for accurate representation. It was created more for a stronghold to perpetuate more wealth amongst the, you know, the larger class. And so that's what that was created. And so when I say I, I get hesit I hesitate to share my information because I know that nobody's read that before and they're just looking at it like, what what is this? And I was like, I, I just can't get people don't recognize that the way that you've been taught has actually been incorrect and was not made for this work to be more equitable. It was made to make it unfair. You know, even going with how you look at people to bring to your organization. Is it legal for you to be able to say that you need more women on your team? Yeah, actually, if I can look and show historically that this has been an impasse for women, then it shows that I and we're trying to correct it. That's the law that nobody talks about. Yes. I I, I don't even want to add anything to that to take. I want like you could just end on that note, right? When we think about right, this, mic drop. Just kidding. Yeah, mic drop. No, I was gonna say mic drop. Seriously, it's there are anyone who's in this space, right? We've seen so much of the conversation as what COVID has exposed or what the death of George Floyd or murder of George Floyd has exposed. It really just brought to light what anyone in this space or anyone who identifies from a protected class really has been managing and fighting against for ever. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's like you said, it's from a it's exposing an, a systemic issue that has been here for centuries to a historically privileged group of people who had the luxury of turning a blind eye or not or pretending it didn't exist or not even knowing. And I think I would say even most people, I like to think it's not even necessarily conscious. It's this system that you talk about, right? It's a it's a inherent foundation that needs to be completely altered and addressed head on. And I think it's it starts with having difficult conversations and ideally you get to a place where those are just conversations, right? And and I think coming from a place of seeking trust and listening, right? You don't have to always answer everyone. <laughs> Someone is coming to you on your team and saying, hey, I have this issue. It's not okay, but it's just, okay, how can we support you? How can we help with this, right? It starts at the core of anything, right? I'll sit here and I'll talk about data all day long. But at the core, we are talking about people, right? We cannot we cannot separate the two. We have to always identify that this is a people matter more than anything else. We just need to treat it as that, right? There's a combination of people and data that can actually move us in the right direction. Awesome. All right, we're gonna end there. Well, we're gonna ask our, our last question, I guess I should say. Um, we will be having you back because there's <laughs> <laughs> like you said, probably seven more hours of stuff that we could dig in yeah. on. Um, and the next time we see each other in person, we need to probably all go have cocktails together and discuss this even deeper. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, last question we like to ask all of our guests um, is what is one thing you uh, you know want to make sure either people heard or one message you want to just kind of shout from the rooftops um, for folks that are doing this work or thinking about this work, whatever it might be? Sure. There's so many things I could say. I think <laughs> uh, without sounding too pessimistic, you will get it wrong, right? There is a high chance that you will get something wrong and that is okay, right? We cannot let the fear of doing something wrong or something being, you know, insensitive. I think of course we want to treat everyone with respect and approach the conversations with respectfully, but understand that you will get this wrong at some step of the way, along some step of the way. And that is okay, right? That is actually the majority of people 
not the minority. So fear should not be standing in your way, right? Fear of exposure. I mean, Jackie used, used the example of it was it exposed a lot and it helped a lot, right? It's not a black and white topic for lack of no pun intended, but it's really, you know, it's it's as simple as that. You have to start somewhere, start anywhere, and it'll move you in the right direction. Awesome. Jackie? I like that. Um, I think I want people to take away that this is a multi-layered approach. When we're talking about some things we can encourage that you can do on your own, pay equity you cannot do on your own. And it, it really is going to take having creating a safe space for everyone because you are going to be dependent on multiple departments data and sharing that information. And so it's going to um, require building that muscle of having those conversations so that you can get access to all of the data so that you can make wise choices. Or you could just call Sabina and use the software. <laughs> no, well, it's, good. it's breaking down those silos, right? Yeah. I, I love to pull reports and then send them off to the abyss. I'm sure every employee loves that. I would add I, kind of to what you both are saying. I think the the one piece to remember is that pay equity touches every piece of the candidate experience from recruiting to development to all of the things. Um, and, and it's something that isn't a one and done. It has to be a continuous conversation. I think that's something that is scary. And to your point, Sabina, it feels very overwhelming. And Jackie, to your point, it isn't something you should try to do on your own. So, you know, getting experts that are, you know, into this and love this information and, and want to play with the Excel sheets or whatever, you know, whatever it is, is such a critical piece to doing this the right way. And even, you know, what should you pull in when you think about total rewards? What should you pull in when you talk about all of the things? Um, it's, it's very complicated and it can be very, very overwhelming and scary. And get a therapist. And, oh yes. And therapy. All right. Awesome. Well, Sabina, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. We really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, we will share your contact information in the show notes. Um, and, uh, definitely, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with Sabina, definitely do that. Uh, it's great software and it's definitely something that's helping organizations. So, uh, this is Katie Van Horn. And this is Jackie Clayton. Bye. Bye. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.